Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we talk to Dr. Ainsley Newson about bioethics and personal genomics. But first up, here's the news on Living Longer. Mutant gut bacteria slow aging. Researchers at the Baylor College of Medicine and the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston deleted one by one all 4,000 non-essential genes of the gut bacteria Escherichia coli to test if any mutants would extend the life of the roundworm Cynorhabditis elegans. Some mutations not only extended the lifespan of the roundworms, but also protected against cancer and a protein associated with Alzheimer's disease. The researchers discovered that 29 bacterial genes, when deleted from the E. coli genome, gave the roundworm host longer life. Twelve of the bacterial mutants protected the worms against age-related progression of tumour growth and amyloid beta accumulation. Five bacterial mutants promoted longer life in the roundworms through increased secretion of a polysaccharide compound called cholanic acid. Cholanic acid regulates the mitochondria in cells that convert food into energy, and it also regulates the unfolded protein response that cells use to deal with the production of wrongly folded proteins. Wrongly folded proteins are at the root of prion illnesses such as Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and Huntington's disease. The researchers found that they could feed the roundworms cholanic acid instead of the cholanic acid-producing bacteria, and they would get the same life-extending benefits as having the bacteria. They also fed cholanic acid to fruit flies, and the flies lived longer, opening up the possibility that the same may hold true for humans they don't yet know the mechanisms of the other life-extending mutant bacteria. The researchers initially found 68 mutant bacteria that extended the worm's lives when introduced to the worm's gut when it was young. They focused on those that extended life by more than 10% and found 35 such mutants. The biggest effect was a mutant that extended life by 40%. 21 of these mutant bacteria still extended the worm's lives when fed to them only as adults. They found 16 mutants that protected worms against cancer, 14 that protected against the accumulation of amyloid beta protein associated with Alzheimer's disease, and 12 that delayed age-related paralysis. Two of the mutant bacteria that helped the roundworms live longer seemed to make a lot of cholanic acid. Cholanic acid is used by many gut bacteria to communicate with each other in biofilms. On closer examination, they found three more bacterial mutants that allowed longer worm life, 
were also producing way more colonic acid than normal E. coli bacteria. The researchers reason that the colonic acid may be the way these five mutant bacteria are extending the worm's life. Colonic acid mediates crosstalk between bacteria and mitochondria, and seems to have an effect on communication between mitochondria and other mitochondria in cells. Mitochondria originally evolved from bacteria that entered cells millions of years ago and adapted instead of being eaten. Colonic acid seems to stimulate mitochondria into reproducing and into helping them deal with stress. The researchers found parallels in the mechanism of colonic acid to the way that the diabetes drug metformin is thought to extend life. When the scientists provided purified colonic acid to roundworms, they also lived longer. Colonic acid showed similar age-slowing effects in the laboratory fruit fly and also in mammalian cells cultured in the lab. The researchers suggest that based on these results, it may be possible to tailor gut bacteria that protect humans from cancer, amyloid protein buildup, and slow down aging. It may also be possible to turn colonic acid into a drug to slow aging while we're waiting for the age-slowing gut bacteria to be engineered into a more comprehensive therapy. Colonic acid is not on the market as a supplement at this time, but I imagine it would be easy to make in a bioreactor. The Houston researchers are now trying colonic acid on mice to see if they live longer. Human clinical trials would be the step after that. The long-term plan is to engineer the mutant gut bacteria to extend human life, as there seem to be more life-extending benefits in the bacteria than just the colonic acid. The paper was titled Microbial Genetic Composition Tunes Host Longevity and was published in the journal Cell. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr Ainsley Newson is Associate Professor of Bioethics at Sydney Health Ethics at Sydney University. I visited her office and began by asking her, what does a bioethicist do? What does a bioethicist do? That's a really interesting question and actually quite a contested one because there is no single answer. It depends, I think, firstly, where you are in the world. So in North America, for example, having hospital-based ethicists in kind of clinical settings is a much more professionalised discipline than it is in Australia. In Australia, people working in the field of bioethics come from philosophy, they come from law, sociology, science, policy, a whole lot of areas, and we all use different methodologies in what we do. But ultimately, what we're all interested in is issues that come up in the context of health or biomedical research, and we're all trying to drive at making healthcare the best it can be for the population and also trying to do things like ensure fair and equitable treatment, ensuring that people don't have things done to them unless they understand what it is, etc., etc. And also that you know research is generally oriented towards goals that are to the interests of the population. So you must cover a lot of issues over the course of a year. You must be 
thinking and writing and working on so many different things. So what are some of the things that you're working on now? Sure. So I have a very specific interest in issues around genomics and genetics and reproductive technologies. And I'd say what ties everything together for me is two things. One is what's on the horizon, what's coming up as a new technology that we might need to think about. And my reason for that is bioethics has traditionally had bit of a reputation for chasing along after the science. So big fancy science discovery happens and everyone kind of goes, oh, oh, we weren't expecting that. What do we do now? Is this appropriate? And so a sort of paradigmatic example that took everyone by surprise was the birth of Dolly the sheep just over 20 years ago. I think everyone was genuinely surprised when that happened. And so I look to the horizon to try and look in advance about if something's coming out, how might we implement that in an appropriate way? And also, do we need it? So I'm often quite critical in my work of what I call technology-led implementation, which is using a technology to create a need as opposed to trying to define what a need might be independently. So horizon scanning is my first thing. And then I'm also, I guess, interested in obligations and relationships in families and how we you know whether being biologically related to another person actually means that we have any special kind of obligation to them that we might not have to someone else and so a couple of examples come up in my field one is around um, organ donation in a living context so say for example you have an advanced form of kidney disease and there is a person in your family who is a good match and you can live with one kidney instead of two but that person for whatever reason doesn't wish to donate a kidney to that family member so how should that be handled how should that be negotiated and how are those relationships negotiated and is the fact that there is a biological relationship special in any way and in genetics, which is the kind of what, what our DNA tells us and the information that derives from it, sometimes you can end up with a piece of information that is of interest not only to your own health, but also the health of your relatives as well. And so what should happen if you, for whatever reason, feel that you can't tell another family member or you don't want to tell another family member? Sometimes it's just because people might feel quite awkward about it, or it might be because there's a family rift or another problem. And so negotiating those obligations and those relationships is something that I think about quite a lot. And also I think a lot about relationships between parents and children and how we go about making decisions for children in a way that is appropriate for them in childhood. So if we go to the first one, you were talking about technology-led issues? Technology-led implementation. So it's I, I have absolutely no idea actually whether this is a term I've come up with or not. So apologies if, I've in, if I'm inadvertently plagiarising any other scholars. But the way I think about this is quite often we're striving towards developing new technologies. And we do that because science is often, for better or worse, a bit of a competition where grants come to people who are successful, who get publications. You tend to get publications if you do something novel. And so part of the issue can be that to get that sort of, not notoriety, but to get that esteem in your discipline, you need to be pushing the boundaries sometimes. But also quite often it's where investment is. And so even though I work in a publicly funded institution, while I'm not personally being encouraged to do this because I don't work at the bench, I'm not kind of a wet lab science person, but commercial partnerships are strongly encouraged by large institutions like universities because it is 
using publicly funded investment to generate more income, to feed back into doing more research. So that's kind of the rationale for it. But ultimately, this issue that it can then give rise to is the fact that you can sometimes end up driving towards technology for the sake of technology, as opposed to actually asking, well, first, what are the needs of the population? Why are we doing this? And so the first thing I often ask with a new technology is, well, have we got something already that's just as good? And so something that's been talked about a lot recently is genome editing or what's known as CRISPR-Cas9 systems. And so Basically, this is a much fancier and more precise way of doing what we've wanted to do for a long time and have done with varying degrees of success, which is to make very fine-grained changes to a genome in a cell, whether that be a cell in a person who's already alive or a plant that's living or a crop or something else like that, or whether we want to change what we call gametes, that is sperm and eggs, or if we want to change embryos to, to make a gene change that will then be inheritable through future generations. And so the media has been really interested in the sort of germline use of this technology for obvious reasons, because it's the most controversial, it's probably the most far-fetched and fancy. But what is interesting is that for a lot of the problems that this is being set up as being able to solve, we already have existing technologies that we can use that are more proven. So prenatal diagnosis, for example, or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. One of those is undertaking a test in pregnancy, and the other one is undertaking a test in an embryo. And so I guess where genome editing differs from those two things is that if you could tweak an egg cell, for example, then you're tweaking something that might be said to be morally less significant because it's an egg as opposed to an embryo or a fetus and so depending on your perspective on those things you might want to accept that technology but it is more invasive it's more risky because you are cutting open a cell and doing something to the genome I should be absolutely clear though none of this is currently legal in Australia and so at the moment these are theoretical discussions and thus an example of the sort of horizon scanning that I mentioned before. So for basic level stuff like, say, engineering yeast, are there ethical issues around that level or is it only when it gets up to medicine and, well, I guess you could make yeast to make medicine, that wouldn't have any problems? Uh, I never say nothing has no problems, um, otherwise I'd do myself out of a job. But actually I have had some engagement with some of the researchers undertaking some work in engineering yeast. And first thing I'd say is they're brilliant, they're extremely clever, but also they're really keen to engage with people working in bioethics like myself because they're very open to what the wider implications of what they do is. And I think for anyone working in science that's actually an incredibly powerful thing to do is to be open to saying well what are the wider implications of what I do so with the yeast example I think a couple of things are if you can use yeast to uh, you know some of these experiments in yeast can help us make better food products they can help us make medicines that are I suppose more widely available than they currently are I can't think of an example off the top of my head but say you know hypothetically which is a tool we get to do in bioethics we get to make up examples and use them to illustrate our position but ultimately what we're looking at is well how can we ensure that whatever we develop is accessible fairly to the population? Is it only going to be available to people who have the money to pay for it? Or can we find a way to make it more appropriately available? 
is the technology that we're using in that yeast actually something that could be applied for more dodgy purposes than good purposes and and what do we do about that and so that's something that we also think about quite a lot is the process for doing that risky if it got out of the laboratory so that's a question that we call sort of biosecurity and biosafety actually is probably the more appropriate term biosecurity is more someone with bad intent running off with it and doing something inappropriate But another thing that's happening with yeast is that they're trying to create a synthetic cell because yeast, as I understand it, has a fairly small genome and it's quite a simple genome. And so this idea of building a cell from scratch is something that is perhaps more achievable in yeast than it would be in more complex cells, at least at the present time. But the principle is the same, this idea creating a cell from not previously having a cell. And so what I would ask as a a person working in bioethics is, should we? So we use the word should a lot and ought and how, if so. So we kind of ask questions that are more values-based. And so we say, well, why should we do this? Uh, what, what about this process is valuable and what will it teach us? And how do we trade that off with potentially some of the drawbacks that might be of less value? And I guess that goes on to the other side. So the engineering is the writing and now and the reading of the genes with uh, genomics. In fact, you can spit into a jar and send it off and get your personal genome sent back to you. What are the issues around personal genomics? So personal genomics is an area that I'm really interested in. And as you say, it is becoming increasingly accessible to consumers. So in Australia at the moment, you can, as you say, spit into a tube or a jar, post it off. And there are a variety of tests that are on the market that you can access without needing to go through a health professional. And they can be health-based, not necessarily available in Australia, available offshore. You can do a paternity test, not one that would be admissible in court, but you can still do one. Testing for wellness, dietary response, physical and sporting ability, ancestry is very popular. And most of these are with providers that are in based in other countries and so the privacy aspects and everything would be subject to the laws in place wherever the company is based. Another thing that is relatively new on the scene is actually doing whole genome sequencing but that's not, depending on where you go, that isn't necessarily just available over the internet. Generally you go and it is commercially provided but you go and you have counselling and speak to a clinician. My question with all of this is what value does it add and why at this point in time might we need to know this information and at least my bottom line is at the moment I don't think the science yet quite lives up to the marketing hype and I do also perceive that there are concerns I guess around things like this information is dynamic in that we We know the meaning of some genes, but quite often you then hear five, ten years down the track that an additional purpose for that gene has been found too. And so you can have a gene test and receive a piece of information, but then actually down the track that information ends up meaning something very different. So listeners can't see me, but I have kind of Albany brownie ready hair and so um, firstly it means that I'm at quite high risk of melanoma I don't need a genetic test to tell me that information but it also can mean the red hair gene has recently been implicated as being at higher risk of Parkinson's disease and so I have a red hair gene because I have red hair and so now I also know potentially that I am at greater risk of Parkinson's disease as well 
And so when you're talking about personal genomics, and this is the idea that you are taking information, using it yourself uh, to inform your life and your work and choices. So I'd say there are no doubt there are individuals for whom this is a valuable thing to do. It is given a lot of terms such as recreational genomics, the ultimate selfie, the sort of the narcissome instead of the genome, the narcissome. And, you know, for people researching their family history, it can be genuinely interesting. But at the same time, I think the offshore provision of a lot of these tests means that they're out of the reach of Australian regulation and we can't be certain that the regulation is as strong as consumers might presume or expect. I also worry about the meaning of this information being changed over time without that ongoing customer support or follow-up. And there is also a lot of tests that are offered that are not proven by science. And so there's been experiments done where, or there's been research done where researchers have sent the same spit sample to kind of four or five distinct different testing providers and they get back a completely different set of results like including sometimes directly contradictory results and so I also worry that the way the test is presented in advance what we would call the consent process isn't as good as it could be and often things such as the long-term storage of the information the sharing of the information with other commercial partners is buried deep in the terms and conditions it's like those software agreements that we all scroll through never read we just get to the bottom and tick the box so we can get on with our working day whilst installing a software update and so there have been studies done that have shown that where kind of regulations do exist, quite a lot of the time the providers aren't keeping up with them. And so this is not to say that all the tests are dodgy because quite a lot of these tests have actually been spun out from universities or research institutes. There are a lot of providers out there trying to do the right thing. I just think from a consumer perspective, it can be quite hard to know what you're what you're dealing with. And companies providing these kinds of tests will also find health professionals that might not necessarily have a background in genetics or genomics and sort of encourage them to offer the testing too. And so it's a bit of a minefield and I would encourage anyone thinking about these kinds of tests to think, well, what's it gonna add to what I already know? And so we've a student of mine who's actually now working with me, her PhD was, or her name's Jacqueline Savard, her PhD was looking at some of these questions. And so she was sort of finding that sometimes the reality doesn't quite live up to the hype. And then there's microbiome testing as well. Yes, although I have to say, I don't know a huge amount about that. What is interesting about the microbiome is its value and use in our bodies is being discovered, you know, its role is actually increasing every time we think more about it. And so there is quite an interesting kind of ethical case study in this, um, and it's a little bit gross, called fecal microbiota transplants. And this is this idea that there is actually a really rich microbiome in our intestines and you can actually distill a lot of this microflora through donating a stool sample. And that is distilled and purified and then provided to another individual and I won't go into the details firstly I don't want to get it wrong but secondly it's quite graphic but ultimately it's this idea that actually we can have imbalances in our microflora and this type of transplant can be quite interesting but this is a really interesting example because clinically 
it is now starting to be offered to patients who have conditions such as really severe treatment resistant diarrhea so you can imagine that would just be a condition that would seriously impact your quality of life it would be really really just a really insidious thing to have to live with but there are now kind of lifestyle clinics, not necessarily in Australia, but certainly around certain countries in the world, where this is being marketed as kind of a gut health enhancement, sort of be the best person you can be kind of scenario. And so, and, and there is also some more slightly interesting anecdotal evidence of people sort of taking on some of the personality quirks of their donors but I think it actually microflora micro our microbiome has a much greater role in health than we envisage so for any of these things generally my approach to novel technologies is well start small start in a well-regulated environment and monitor people who receive any of these interventions to see what happens let you know let's just not kind of let commercial or other sort of potentially unregulated providers run away with it because we could end up with real harm being done until we have more information. So it's not necessarily to say not to do it because some of the opening evidence for this could be that it could be quite an important intervention where there is a significant clinical need. But preying on sort of consumers to say, be the best you can be with our fancy microflora transplant, I worry about you know, people being parted with their money for reasons that aren't necessarily legitimate. That was Dr Ainsley Newson, Associate Professor of Bioethics at Sydney Health Ethics at Sydney University, talking about the ethics of genomics. You can hear more from Ainsley in future episodes of Diffusion. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.